0: Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You're here with Auntie Vice and today our guest is Amani Barbarin. She is a disabilities advocate, a content creator and one of the best Instagram accounts to follow out there cuz I and, and Twitter. Both your social media is on point. On Thank point. You. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Auntie Vice. Thank you for being here. So, your work is around uh, disability advocacy, but you also have a degree in creative writing and you speak French. You went to the Sorbonne. So how did you move from being a creative writer into being a very
1: staunch disability advocate? Well, so, so my undergrad was in creative writing. I I know the bio you're referencing mm-hmm. and I refuse to update it um, <laughs> because I hate, I hate writing about myself, but uh, yeah, so I got my undergrad in creative writing, and then I got my master's in global communications from the American University of Paris. And I really went into that degree wanting to talk and write more stories that center disabled people, but not just disabled people, but diverse disabled people, because I was growing up watching these representations that were either all male or all white men and and seeing very, very few women, let alone black women or Um, disabled women of color represented. So I really wanted to tell the stories of us and really kind of travel the world and incorporate as many voices as possible and reshaping a narrative that includes all disabled people as well as all the diversities that we hold within us. We have a lot of folks working
0: on inclusion writ large, right? Which usually means they go through and they figure out what color of crayons they need in their box to to. To complete this. And almost no organizations think about disabilities as part of that larger inclusion. When you are out and working, how do you raise the issue of organizations and and workspaces not addressing disability when they may be addressing other types of diversity?
1: Well, one of the things I noticed with organizations, particularly in their hiring practices, whether it's corporations, organizations, nonprofits, it's all kind of very much the same thing. It starts with their job descriptions. Like it very much starts at the very, very beginning. You know, if you have a job description that says must lift 25 pounds and it's a data entry job and you're just moving information from one database to another, you you specifically put that there to call out disabled people and make sure that they wouldn't apply to that position. So when they go get time to do DEI work and look around the organization and say, well, I have no disabled people. So this isn't a really good issue here. It's like, I mean, it is, but, but like, you don't realize just how far back it goes. And so when I talk to them, I'm like you really have to understand that people will not disclose their disability to you. If you are an employer, that is not a safe space. That is not an organization that is showing that you're showing up for disabled people that you work with every single day. And they're, they're like, well, you know, I can't really ask questions about disability. It's like, you don't have to, if you make accessibility, the standard for everybody then everybody's included. Don't think about it as one person here, one person there. Like everybody has accommodation needs. We just um, socialize them differently based on who's valuable, quote unquote. So that's what I try to tell them is the basis is make everything accessible, create a culture of accessibility, and then you can begin from there. And I
0: think that's that's the key. You call out the big thing of when they put on, you have to be able to lift so much weight. Right. That's 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 a really easy way to screen out anybody with with a huge variety of disabilities. Hiring is also a big issue. There's a significant portion of of disabled people who could work, cannot get employed because people prejudge what we can do. So how do you fight that going out into the world when somebody's looking at you and they may be thinking they have mobility issues? They're blind. They're deaf. Obviously, they can't work in this space.
1: Yeah. One of the things that is very interesting is that nine times out of 10, when a disabled person is applying for a job that they are qualified, they're actually overqualified for it. There there are so many disabled people with advanced degrees, advanced expertise, experience that people just refuse to hire because they look at the disability and say, well, you know, we can't accommodate that. We're not going to deal with that. Like, I don't want any excuses. And it's like, you have overqualified people in, in your queue to interview and you're just skipping over them. And I get really frustrated because a lot of organizations will talk a good game about inclusivity and all these things, and then not hire disabled people. And I've had the, I've had the experience and I've heard other disabled people with the exact same experience where I was applying for hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of jobs. And it was always this cool thing that I had a disability And then the instant I stopped disclosing, I was getting interviews after interview after interview, and that's a problem. Like, why, why is this, why is this occurring? Why do we have to lie about our disabilities? And for me, who has a visible disability, there's not enough lying that I can do to that'll prohibit me from like stepping into an office with crutches and be like, "Hello, I'm here," Um, you know. Uh, So I think I think a lot of companies need to rethink what inclusivity means to them and if it's really worth it for them um, because I'm sick of all this posturing about, oh, we're really inclusive and then nothing gets done. I'd rather right. you tell me the truth um, and you face the consequences than you lie to me and me hoping that there's inclusion going forward and there's not. Yeah. Well, and they're going to be folks to reckon with it in the next few
0: years. You, like so many of us in the the disability community, are saying COVID is going to be a mass disabling event. The way COVID affects the body, both long COVID and the the what there's is expecting you know some of the aftermath to be means mm-hmm. about 10% of us are going to be looking at like we have some type of autoimmune condition, some form of disability that is going to impact our way to work. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you see for employers in the next 10 or 15 years with with so many people having been infected by this?
1: I feel like it is a public, a societal failure for more people to not actively organize around healthcare access during this time. This is the time. Like when everything was was under stress and under strain, that was the time. Um, and a lot of times when we think about communication, we think about the timing of a message more so, even more so than like the substance of the message itself. Um, we don't necessarily all have to agree on like the intricacies of policy around universal healthcare, universal basic income, but we can all agree that we had a, a very s- small window to raise a ruckus about it. And that's a failure. You know, it's a failure for our policymakers to not even lobby on these things during this crisis. Um, and first of all, okay, I have a gripe. I hate, I just truly like, can I cuss? Please, please. Okay. We swear all the time. I fucking hate watching Joe Biden tweet about how everybody deserves universal health. You're the fucking president. Stop tweeting at us. Like you're in a, like, second year policy class and you actually have the power to change this shit and you're and we're all struck like it's a i hate that but anyway like that's not calling for universal healthcare. that's you passing the buck to us to raise a ruckus about it so then you can respond no do the damn job we hired you to do okay that's okay <laughs> anyways um <laughs> i get very frustrated i hate looking at it i want to block him so bad but i need to do it for my i need to follow him for my job So, yeah, like, and I think that there's going to be a whole system-wide change. You know, there's um, really big rumblings in the social security world about, like, they're they're so under stress that, you know, people are fearful of getting kicked off. People are fearful of never getting disability. People are saying it's underfunded and under cared for. We got to make that stuff a priority. Disabling events happen. They're going to happen. And especially if we don't have policy behind it that... Takes care of people as people rather than products and widgets in a machine that you could just discard. Like, anyways, I get <laughs> I get so angry. But yeah, like I, I genuinely see this is an opportunity to really re- reimagine what community looks like, as well as community care, healthcare resources, and all of that. We just have to want it enough. We I think a lot of people are getting to that point where it's there's no where else to move. Like there's nowhere else to negotiate space. You can't afford to rent. You can't afford to buy a home. You can't afford to do any, you can't afford your healthcare. You have to choose between your healthcare and food on the table on a daily basis. And these are people who are are making what are considered traditional Mm middle-class incomes. And sometimes middle to high-class incomes who can't afford food and things like that. So um, imagine what people who are in poverty are living with every single day, having to make something out of nothing every single day. And the more we bail out corporations at the at the detriment of our healthcare, at the detriment of our society, the more people are going to be in that situation of trying to make a way out of no way. And people, uh, the more people that are that are experiencing that, the worse things are going to get. They just yeah, and there's so much to unpack with this. So let's start with uh, Social
0: Security and Social Security disability. Because mm-hmm. that system was broken before we went
1: to this. Oh, yeah. I think right. between the years of 2009 and 2000, I want to say 2009 and 2018, 19, something like that. Like in a 10-year span, 100,000 people died mm-hmm. waiting for Social Security. <laughs> That's absurd. Yeah, and I don't think people realize... What the process is
0: until you go through it. Right. When I applied, I, you know, I applied, it took five and a half years. It took a lawyer and it's because it's geared to the way disability thinks about it is you're only worth what you're producing. If you haven't paid into the disability system in a significant amount, so you haven't had a job where you're making a higher income, what mm-hmm. you get is tiny. The average disability payment is just over $1,000 a month, which is not livable in any city in this country. Yeah. yeah. And and when they do the evaluations, they have no concept of what a dynamic disability is, right? Mm-hmm. So where do we start? Because especially with people dealing with disability out of COVID, it's going to be a dynamic disability, uh, you know, and so many people within, if you're making 30 or 40,000 a year, you're looking at maybe $600 a month and that's not rent in
1: any state. No, no. It's so hard to pinpoint where exactly to start because all of it's fucked. I mean, from housing I mean, even if you do get housing, only five percent of available homes are accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, you, you can't like rents on average are like fifteen hundred for like a studio these days. Right. Um, let, let alone if you need a one bedroom because you have a mobility aid that you, that is large. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's all these different dynamic issues, and we're our society is designed to discard disabled people and mm-hmm. to put us in such desperate situations. That we are discarded of, and people think nothing of it, which is why our pandemic has been exacerbated as much as it has. Um, but the thing I would start with first is healthcare. Like mm-hmm. people's access to e- equitable healthcare is re- what really needs to change, because every single form of racism, bigotry, or marginalization is meant to disable you and then discard of you, yep. um, because people have that cognitive. I don't. I, I kind of. I kind of liken it to a switch. Where as soon as somebody hears that somebody's disabled and died or disabled and injured, like oh that happens. Mm-hmm. That happens. But when you actually look at the di- dynamics of the disability community, you realize you're perpetuating transphobia, homophobia, racism, sexism, all by using our healthcare. So our healthcare, I think, is what needs to come first. And we really need to increase the wages for healthcare workers. We need to increase the wages for direct support workers. We're in like in a very big crisis. Like there's not enough of them right now. Like, I mean, it's really bad. We need to increase payments for social security to disabled people. We need to lift income limits because if you like the idea that you, you making $2,000 a month is too much when that's not even rent. Right. Like that's absurd. Right. That's absurd. And there's not too many pathways. Like social security has ticket to work where you can make up to 90 grand a year. But then like, it's more of like a transitional period where you can, where they want you off of social security eventually mm-hmm. yourself making that income. But even that income isn't a whole lot when you realize you being disabled costs 28% more than a non-disabled person. So I don't know, like I've, I feel so lost when I think about what comes first of what needs yeah. to happen. Um, but I think people just need food on their table, a hospital that they can go to if they're in trouble, mm-hmm. um, a roof over their head. And people are not asking for much. They're not asking for exorbitant things. They're asking for the bare minimum. And mm-hmm. people are laughing in our faces, and I think that's
0: one of the most disheartening parts of it. And and in the last three years, the constant messaging by the media that disabled deaths don't count, and yes. say like somehow it's okay that we're all dying. And then you add on, you know, this, the, we had the study that came out this week that showed once people understood that COVID was hitting Black and Brown communities the hardest, they stopped caring the the minimum level of care that they had yeah. dropped and so that's where you see this conjunction of, of racism and and disability you know bias and then all of a sudden none of these people mattered
1: yeah and i've actually been getting messages over the past week or so about the shift in cdc messaging that is about to come like there have been several people getting cdc requests for content and stuff mm-hmm. around it now they're going to be seeking to blame chronically ill people for mm-hmm. getting COVID in the first place. Right. Um, like take, you have to take care of your health first. Like it won't be as bad if, if you, if you weren't diabetic, if you weren't taking care of your other needs. Um, like I've seen some of the videos that they've been passing around and it's horrendous. And the more we can, like, we have to prepare for that. We have to prepare for the blame to go around. Um, but we need to have, we need to lie it at the feet of the people who are solely responsible, which is our policymakers. They let us down. They played politics with our lives. Now I'm to turn around and pretend like, oh, we're just getting back to normal. Everything's going to be OK. It's not OK. None of this is OK. And we have created a country that caters more to corporations and billionaires than the average person who votes for them. Um, and that needs to fundamentally change. It does. It does. So the,
0: with some of that messaging, that's one of the problems with the healthcare system, right? We, we like to blame people for the systematic inequalities on their own show, shortcomings. Yeah. And so let's talk about what real accessibility to healthcare means, because people will say, well, with the ACA, everybody has access to insurance. Everybody has access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. This isn't real access, right? No. So what, no. Does, what would real... Equitable access to healthcare looked like.
1: Well, first we need to look at the ACA and how it has been so uniquely attacked that, like, it's so exorbitant now mm-hmm. um, because it's been attacked over the last decade or decade and a half. You know, I looked at quotes because I will be leaving my job this month and actually next week um, to do this work full time, and my quote for health insurance, like, a most the most coverage I could find was seven hundred dollars a month for for health insurance and and so when people say oh you you have the you know you have the affordable care Act, you have all these things first of all not every not every uh state has equitable affordable care Act act, access then it's exorbitant costs then you have the fact that um people are also very hesitant to go to the doctor in the first place So they're like, I'm not going to need insurance. Why would I go? Um, They're not going to take me serious seriously, regardless. Healthcare equity means making sure that you you don't treat people in spite of race, but but seeing the ways in which race, gender, um, sexuality, disability impacts how disability is formed and how diagnoses are formed in people's lives, and making treatment plans that fit around those identities instead of trying to barrel through them with a one size fits all mentality, Mm -hmm. Um, and then blaming people if they don't choose that path, you know, like that's not okay. It's not okay for doctors to to basically dismiss patients and say, that's, well, I gave you this recommendation. Why aren't you doing it? Like, well, this medication makes me sick. Well, that's just a good side effect. Like I've tried SSRIs once. I almost passed out. I was pissed. You mean to tell me like, I feel everything, every wrong thing with my body. I I would rather live depressed and in bliss of never having to like, they don't tell you these things. So being more uh, involved in patients' healthcare holistically and understanding their responsibility as medical professionals as well, understanding that if you diagnose somebody with a disability, you you impact our lives in every single aspect. Mm-hmm. Like you can even impact the way somebody votes based mm-hmm. off of the diagnosis that they get. Like if you're in a conservatorship, in some states, you're not allowed to vote. Right. Um, so they don't realize how how impactful their work is in that hospital room, in these medical situations, that re- that really kind of deter people from getting healthcare in the first place. Yeah, everything like it's, like I said, is hard. Oh, it's so broken. And you talk about how they they treat people
0: like they think we're all there's two models of cars, right? And and you're assigned it based on your your genitals, and then that's how they treat you. Yeah. And anything that doesn't fit that standard model of car is seen as your fault. So let's take some of the basic stuff that comes up with healthcare and some of these discrepancies. So people will go in uh, and, you know, doctors, they their two favorite things. You know, people like to think that, you know, there's a doctor house out there who cares to get to the root of the thing. And I am <laughs> wow. fond of saying he's the greatest science fiction character out there because I have never met a doctor who cares that much about a patient's health. Well, he was also disabled. So. Right. <laughs> True. Um, yeah. But, you know, you go in and and you tell them you have this laundry list of problems and they're going to tell you to diet, take an antidepressant and uh, deal with it. Right. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. let's let's just look at diet, which was one of the most. It's one of the recommendations that just ignore a whole aspect. So, <laughs> you know, doctors will say, well, you need to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and a little more fish than red meat. So, for people who don't understand why that doesn't work
1: for people, why doesn't that work for a huge swath of people? I mean, everything from culture to availability of fresh fruits and vegetables to eating disorders. Like, I've, I have had eating disorders since I was 10 or 11 years old. And people were like, well, you just need to lose weight. And I'm like, e- what? Like, nobody treated me for eating disorders until I was like in my mid 20s. And they were like, "Well, if you'd be skinny, and this is, and uh, there's also the fact like, oh, this is a white thing, you know, you you don't get those things." Um, But they don't realize just how much of a jackass they sound when they're like, "Just diet." I lit like, (laughs) I I've had. (laughs) I remember I went to the doctor's office once and I was coughing pretty bad. I would think I was like 13 or 14. I was coughing pretty bad. They're like, well, you know, you just need, you know, I think it's really stress on your heart because you're obese and, you know, you have, um, maybe this is congenital heart failure. Like they, they sent my parents into a tailspin. Turns out I had walking pneumonia. I like, I was, I was drowning in flu. Like I had pneumonia and they were just like, Oh, whoops whoops it's just it's ridiculous. and doctors kind of taught themselves as like these brilliant people and then look at you after five seconds and then guess mm-hmm. like <laughs> they're literally guessing that's absurd, but I hate the mo- I hate the intellectual superiority of it all um to just look at a fat person and go it's it's your diet. It's not my diet.
0: well, and they say that without ever asking what your diet looks like and what is a reasonable diet for you
1: right, <laughs> right yeah. Yeah, because like for me as a disabled person, I can't cook every meal. Like I can't stand mm-hmm. there. I get I'm in so much pain that I'll just like snack on the way throughout the meal, and then be like, "Well, I'm I'm full now." Um, <laughs> by the time I finish the meal, you know.
0: Yeah, the and and the fat bias is enormously prevalent in healthcare, right? They, if you are overweight in any way, they assume all of your problems stem from being overweight. So you bring up having an eating disorder and the assumption that you, people with eating disorders must be thin.
1: Yeah. So yeah.
0: how do we begin to talk to, I mean, it's been one of the most frustrating things in my health journey. Cause they kept saying it was because I was heavy, even when scans revealed multiple lung masses, they said, well, you should probably diet. And when I asked for a lung mass specific diet, they said I was the one being absurd. So how do, how do we begin to have a reasonable conversation with unreasonable
1: people? I'm, 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 I'm team will, um, I'm more <laughs> stopping is appropriate. Um, no, I mean,
0: <laughs> I, look, I'm in the kid community. I have a closet full of whips and floggers. I have thought about bringing into a doctor's appointment. <laughs>
1: Listen, I have crutches, so like i, I moving every day. Some like I, I really wish doctors took their bedside manner way more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, like this, this idea of like this, this intellectual superior, emotionally cold doctor is like very much so touted in these circles. And when you're when you're interacting with a patient, like even from a communication standpoint, by acting like that, you're just gonna turn them off to be like this is not going to go well. I'm not going to sit here and talk about my issues. I'm just going to try to get what I need is as, as quickly and succinctly as possible and then leave. And more doctors need to understand that that that's a part of their job too. You have to interact with people. You have to be kind to people. You have to understand where they're coming from. And yes, you have enormous workloads. Nobody is discounting that at all. But the fact that more medical professionals are not advocates for better wages for better hiring practices for better for all of these different systems that can make their lives easier Mm -hmm. and then they blame us because like we we have we're going to the doctor for every little thing that's not true like like people do not want to go to you like people see you all as a last resort nine times out of ten um so they also need to be advocates for their own Mm -hmm. industry for their own peers and colleagues they also need to have better on their plates but yeah, like every single time I talked to my doctors about having, I, I've never really talked too closely with them about having eating issues. They always just assumed that I was overeating and that was it. Like they just mm-hmm. assumed that I was eating the wrong things. I was eating very normal things, but I had a binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So like people were like, your binge eating is, you know, you eat, They're like, so you're eating like cakes and things like that. I was like, no, I had a full rack of ribs. Yeah. And then I have like, it was like eating stuff that was, you know, like it was very keto binge eating. Yeah. Like it, was like, it was, it followed within the confines of the diet you gave me, but um, <laughs> it just happened to be a lot of it. Um, yes. And, and I think that doctors just kind of looked at me was like, eh. like she's, she's fat, she's black, mm-hmm. she's, she's going through puberty, all these different things. And I was like, just somebody look at me like more. Yeah involved than this and i was under a lot of stress from a very young age i mean people have commented on my body every single day since i was two years old whether it be for cerebral palsy reasons or weight reasons or my hair or like every single day since i was two years old so um nobody ever thought about like the psychological impact of that um and they were just looking at me like well you just need to lose weight you need to walk more and people don't realize that walking for me in public is not as much fun as it is for everybody else People staring and pointing at me and trying to like talk at me and laugh at me. It's Mm -hmm. I don't want to be outside, you know.
0: Yeah, no, I I get that. Now, the other in one of the other areas you run into issues with is racism, right? And there's a bunch of white people have finally discovered that there might be a little racism in the medical system in the last three years, right? A lot of us (laughs) knew it, but you know, there was all these white people who it's this big shock. that doctors treat black and brown folks differently. What are some of the ways that manifests for people who who are just discovering this and thinking they're very woke?
1: Yeah, um, I I find that a lot of people think that just because it's unintentional means that it's not as impactful. And that I don't care. Like, I don't care what their intentions were. The end result is the same. You know, a lot of these, we also need to confront the fact that a lot of these doctors are trained in eugenics, like straight up. Like their entire viewpoint on medical care is based off of, it try this and if it doesn't work, like either they're not trying hard enough or they meet like, this is the last resort, we're going to just dispose of them from the rest of society. And racism is very heavily embedded in that because the KKK were the ones, were some of the biggest proponents of eugenics. And so and they're also policy bankers? Yeah, they're, yeah it's, they're everywhere, God. Yeah. But yeah, I think when we talk about medical racism, I get fr- kind of frustrated because I get really annoyed when people realize something that people have been talking about for decades, mm-hmm. centuries, in, um, regarding medical care and our access to it. And then also, and then also want to center themselves in it as soon as they learn about it. I'm like, no, this is not show and tell. It's just listen and be quiet. <laughs> just just let people have the the microphone for a second. And I think what a lot of people get wrong too is just how deep it goes Mm -hmm. like they think of it as they think okay i have to talk about the slap a little bit um like a majority of white people view violence as as like a physical action Mm -hmm. like as a physical manifestation of anger or hatred or something like that they don't view speech they don't view policy they don't view personal interactions as violence even though it is very violent, you know, if people are not believed in their hospital room because they're black or the doctor sees them as drug seeking and then they get the police called on them and tased and shot and harmed, that's violence. You led to violence. Not simply. It's not as simple as, Oh, well, they didn't mean it. They just said some words and like, you know, but that violence is never the answer. No, you were violent first. There was violence first that people reacted to and people negate that. And we kind of paint, over these systems of violence as just misunderstandings as just not enough education. as just not enough, not enough people talking to them in the right type of way. That's bullshit. It's violence first. And people are not going to respond to violence with these, with coddling you all mm-hmm. through what they're going through. Like that's just not going to happen. Um, and more people need to do their own research. i like, for the love of God, Like, <laughs> please, I beg of you. Like, to, I, I hate to be the person to be like, like google more but i mean there are people that have already talked about that talked about it there are people that have written about these things ad nauseum find them like or like go through a referral system i feel like there should be like no child left behind for like white people but like you all just like circulate resources amongst yourselves and then let like black and people of color just like chill for a minute like that's the goal And you're right. I mean, there's plenty of folks who
0: have written about this extensively. And it was one of the frustrations when people started shutting down for for lockdown that so many disabilities advocates had is we've been asking for this type of accommodation so that we can work for decades.
1: Yes. And it was,
0: yeah, yeah. And, and we're denied over and over. And then all of a sudden able-bodied people needed it and boom, it was not a fucking issue.
1: Like literally overnight. That was the yes. worst part. Like we like they were like, it's gonna be so difficult to implement. Nobody's going to want to use it. There's gonna be so many issues and you know, we don't even know if it's worth it. Literally overnight. Yes. They, they hemmed and hawed for decades to get the most basic accommodations in some of these organizations. And then all of a sudden, well, you know, it's all of a sudden possible. Let's all do it. Let's uh, you know, remote work is great, remote healthcare is great, like what the hell like yeah i almost didn't want the accommodations because it came for them but like i was like okay we okay we can work with this a little bit i guess yeah i think that was one of the things that you know i thought was
0: frustrating between that and being told that you know my death was reasonable to keep the stock market
1: going right and like who has most control of the stock market like the people who make billions upon billions of dollars like the average person does not have an investment in the stock market um, not at least like that as exorbitant of an amount. So I want to
0: go back to to talking about some of the violence that people experience within the healthcare system because you've hit on a really important point. Just because it was unintentional does not mean it's not damaging. And one of the biggest things that happens, especially to disabled folks and fat folks and and black and brown folks, is uh, medical gaslighting.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Where we're we're, we're told that we're making it up, we're just seeking attention, these are not real symptoms. Is there a way to begin to address that?
1: I I've, I've like, I get a lot of requests to speak to like medical groups. Mm-hmm. More people need to hire me to speak to medical groups. But you need to really be listening to disabled advocates on all of these things. This gaslighting is part of what's called like the, the individual model of disability mm-hmm. coupled with the medical model of disability. And it kind of manifests like this is your personal issue. Like this is not for us to solve. Where disability is going, only going to be overcome by you if you try hard mm-hmm. enough, if you do A, B, or C. Um, and we really do approach healthcare in that way, as well as policy around disability in that way. Um, and so medical gaslighting is basically saying, well, if it's all in your head, then there's nothing I have to do to fix it. Not just need to do, but have to do to fix it. Mm-hmm. If it's all you just making it up, then that's a personal issue that you need to deal with on your own. I'm not going to give you the resources because again, we also have to realize that when people get a diagnosis, when people get seen by doctors, certain services kick in right. so that people can better deal with their diagnoses. So I think doctors, like I said, really need to understand their responsibility to their patients and realize just how deep a lot of this stuff goes. They have more control over disabled people's lives than they realize, and that is not said enough. I think doctors also need to get over their biases, like do bias training. The fact that so many don't is disturbing. The fact that so many do not uh, consider the ways in which they were taught to view race disability is frightening. And and they need to understand that harm does not require malice. Mm Um, harm and violence does not require anger or all of these negative emotions mm-hmm. that we associate with violence. You could be violent by, by ignoring somebody mm-hmm. by ignoring them as they are struggling mm-hmm. and they really need to, to unpack why they are socialized to not believe people about their diagnoses.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the areas that comes up a lot with too is people who deal with chronic pain, right? Mm-hmm. There's, the, especially with the media attention to the "quote unquote" opioid crisis, right, and which wasn't a crisis until a bunch of white people started ODing. Let's let's be honest about this, um, right? Um, but now anybody who says they have pain is immediately classified as a drug seeker. And if you are on any type of opioid, we have very strict policies where we treat you like you are a drug addict from day one. You have to regularly pee in a cup and get drug screened and have to subject to pill counts, even if you're trying to treat something that is diagnosed and they have evidence of pain. How That obviously gets more complicated when it comes to gender and race and, and disability getting involved what are some of the the areas of the medical profession when dealing with pain that you find
1: frustrating and would like to see changed asap? I think the criminalization of pain management is a huge issue because it really does go along racial lines nine times out of ten. Um, not to say that white people don't experience that that also that criminalization also, but it is meant to keep black and brown people from that care um, mm-hmm. and. Again, that's violence because people think about unaliving themselves and um, doing harm to themselves simply to get the care that they need, or to just let it stop. Um, and pain is such a difficult thing to let people know about because you don't see it on somebody's face all the time. Like if you're if you're somebody who has pain every single day, that is your normal. You're not going to act out pain. You're not going to act out like the stress your body is under from this pain, you're going to be like, this is a Tuesday. (laughs) Like, you know, like I'm in so much pain, I need pain management, but this is still a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And I really wish, I really wish policymakers understood the decisions that they're Mm -hmm. making around a lot of these restrictive laws regarding opioids. Um, Because again, it's not meant to protect as many people as they think it is. And people are still going to get drugs. Like we need to decriminalize all drug use and create programs that, spur people towards help and assistance without judgment or criminalization. That's why people are not getting it. Like people are terrified of getting arrested, of getting put into the system and then led into the slavery enabled prison system, you know? So like, there's really real reasons why people are are out here saying, no, I'm not going to get the treatment. I'm just going to continue using because that's the only option I have before me um, that won't harm me. And so we really need to decriminalize drug use. We need to um, democratize access to pharm- pharmaceuticals. And we really need to combat drug prices. And if, if you want to really combat opioids, actually hold these companies accountable. These fines that these companies are getting are just the cost of business at this point. Mm-hmm. They don't care. So don't put the blame with the individual. Put the blame with the, the people who are manufacturing them in the first place. And these protocols again, are meant to blame people for their own issues. They're meant to blame people for their own pain. Um, and that needs to change fundamentally.
0: Exactly. So you, you've you had the joy of being outside of the American healthcare system. Um, Americans like to believe we have the best healthcare system in the world. Statistically, yeah. we really don't. I think we're currently in like number 37 on the list of industrialized nations for quality and accessibility of healthcare. And number one, only in cost. Yes. Um, so and you know, there's all this fear mongering around socialized medicine, and there will be these horribly long waits um, for for basic care. I hate to disillusion people, but there's already horribly long waits for specialists, right? It yeah. took me nine months to see a neurologist, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, what was
1: your experience in France with healthcare? How was it different? It was very simple. Like, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't seeing too many doctors simply because I wasn't. I didn't have too much. Going on at the time, mm-hmm. although I should have seen like them towards the end. I was having sh- blood sugar issues um that I didn't re- recognize as such. But anyways, I thought I was just drinking more water. <laughs> um But healthy, <laughs> you're glowing. I was like, I'm drinking so much water, I'm peeing all the time, and it's like my blood sugar's like. No, we need to get some of this shit out of here. Yeah, yeah. Like when I would when I would have like when I would get sick, mm-hmm. um I would have like a mild cold, like a cough, like sore throat, like very basic things, and they would just like just go to the pharmacy. I was like, no, but don't I need to see a doctor? Like no, go to the pharmacy. They're medical professionals too. Yeah. And then the, the pharmacist would literally give me a six pack of lozenges that I was supposed to take twice daily for like six, seven days. Mm-hmm. It was good. It was like over like day three, and I was just taking the lozenges for the habit of it at that point. But it was so easy to just get care, and the pharmacists were as equipped as nurse practitioners to give out medical advice and prescribe things. It was so easy to get medication. That I was like, well, in a couple of days, it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, it was really irritating, but I know that there were friends that went to doctors' offices and, like, we have to go to the tuberculosis test, mm. and that's kind of like a, it's like a kind of like a livestock. Yeah, that was very weird. But um but it, all in all, like, they were fine. They were just like, hey, you know, you might want to take a look at this. You'll be okay. Uh, don't go to this doctor. If they speak English. You'll be okay. Um, it wasn't a huge deal. It was just like. You were fine, and also my disability didn't stick out as much because my crutches that I use for my cerebral palsy here are different from the injury crutches that we use in the United States. So they use the underarms for sprained mm-hmm. ankles, but in France they use lost strand or forearm crutches for mm-hmm. everything. So people just thought I had a sprained ankle, like <laughs> so. So like I was just walking around like nobody cared. It was such a different experience regarding health and how health is socialized there, and there were less people staring at me and asking what's wrong with me? Because I didn't stick out there. Yeah. Well,
0: and you did a really interesting post a while back on how we deal with medical equipment and crutches specifically, right? Because in the U S it's focused around cheap and disposable, which is how we see disabled people in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, So what was the difference of being able to get better quality, durable medical equipment?
1: Yeah. So I remember I had to get I think I had to get like snowshoes from my crutches at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, they were just like, here, like, it's not that big of a deal. It was like 10 euros. It wasn't a huge amount of money. And I, I was, I brought my crutches with me. I brought extra crutches with me because I didn't mm-hmm. know if I would be able to get them. But when I went to shops and stuff to look at canes, they were very durable, very cheap. It wasn't a huge deal. People weren't making a big fuss about it. Um, everybody had something. But I think here there's like, there's such a rigor rigmarole because have so many middlemen mm-hmm. between just like people with chronic illnesses and disabilities and their care. Like there's so like, like, like there's so many people between a patient and their, and the care that they need that it makes it not worth it to go through the system. 9, 10, 10. I buy my crushes all the Amazon. They're like 50, 60 bucks. Right. Um, it's so easy. Cause I go through them cause I'm fatter. So um, I wear them down a lot faster. But I don't go through my medical system because then it takes a prescription. It takes going to a specialized medical equipment store. Then it could take mm-hmm. getting uh, the right fitting for it. And I just like, I'm fine with the crutches I got. Um also I keep breaking the really nice crutches. Um I broke <laughs> I broke a pink pair of crutches when I was like in sixth grade by playing dodgeball, like a week after I got them. And my parents were like, <laughs> Never again. like they were twelve hundred dollars and you broke them in a week and we're just getting you the cheap kind well and and
0: when it comes to all of the layers people also think most durable medical equipment is paid for in full by your insurance so let's disillusion of them of that
1: yeah like with anything else there's co-pays and like extra payments like no of course yeah, and it's, it's been one thing, you know, in the
0: disability community that started to get a little more traction, at least on social media, is airlines breaking wheelchairs, right? So if you travel yeah. with a chair, um, and you, especially a power chair, uh, airlines, one, don't know how to handle them, and often will break them.
1: Yeah, and it really sucks too, because I, I'm somebody that goes, I travel a lot for speaking engagements mm-hmm. and different events that I'm at. Um, and it really sucks. It really sucks because <laughs> by the time, like, I have my own scooter that I can take with me, like, but I'm so afraid to use it that I don't take it with me. So I might end up paying for scooter rentals while I'm there, for fear that the airline's gonna break my scooter. Yeah, even even just dem- like more domestic travel can be even difficult with using trains and re- realizing which train stops are accessible, getting the right car, bus. It's a, it's a mess. Everything's a mess. Um, and people think that it's a huge, it's not that big of a deal. Like, oh, you have extra wheelchairs or like, it's easy to fix. No, these are custom designed wheelchairs. People don't realize you're like, it's a health hazard to not have a custom wheelchair. You mm-hmm. can develop sores, sepsis, all of these issues, particularly for people who are in wheelchairs full time yeah, um, and who need those protections because they can't move around as much. So people just completely discount that. I'm like, well, you'll be fine. i will got it in a week. There's sometimes like six month waiting lists to get your wheelchair fixed. I remember talking to an employer who works for a disability organization who was saying, oh, I always schedule two weeks off for all of my employees after a flight or mm-hmm. after travel for the organization because they'll inevitably, inevitably break their wheelchair and need to get it fixed. But like the fact that people were cognizant enough to be like, hey, yeah, they're gonna break them anyways. Like, let's make sure that people have a couple of weeks off, or at least a couple of weeks of work from home, so that they can at least try to get them fixed. But yeah, and pe- like, it's devastating. It is. Um, I'd liken it to a musician and their instrument. Like, you never touch a musician's instrument without their permission, without their express say so. You handle it with care if you have it in your care. Um, and the same thing goes for mobility aids. They're so tied to our identity in a lot of ways, and they're a part of us. And you're people just breaking them willy nilly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then being
0: so casual and dismissive about trying to get those claims, which is the, yeah,
1: oh. it's it's maddening. The worst part, okay. The worst part, the worst. Hor- okay, the worst part. <laughs> is the amount of times I've seen airlines give people a voucher for two hundred bucks to fly with them again. Are right? you right? <laughs> Who thought that was a good idea? Like. Here's a $200 reimbursement. That was a $30,000 wheelchair you broke. You gave me 200 bucks. And you want me to go back on your airline. Right. Like you didn't even give it me in cash. You just gave me a voucher to fly with you again. And I have to like pay out the nose to get my wheelchair fixed. That's oh. ridiculous.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's bad. So there, obviously there's a shit ton of uh, things to be frustrated about with disability. And I think all of us who live with chronic illness and disability get enormously frustrated. So much of the time, there are some good stuff. And I, and it's one of the reasons I love your social media is you put up all these fabulous shots of you. So where do you get the inspiration for all of these like amazing
1: posts that you put up? The fun stuff. Yeah. Um, so I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think disability humor is like one of the best. Um, I just find it funny and I like making people uncomfortable. Oh, well, not disabled people uncomfortable. Disabled people get the joke every time, but non disabled people are like, am I to laugh am I supposed to giggle I'm going to hell you're going to hell for other reasons but not for laughing at this joke right and I really just enjoy I really enjoy the arts and acting and all of these different facets to my identity that like I kind of pushed aside for advocacy because I was working more on getting in the door than realizing why I wanted to be there in the first place so uh, I'm trying to build more space for joy and that's my great goal as we continue with this pandemic because fuck everybody else. Honestly, Um, I want disabled joy. I want disabled passions. I want disabled people to talk about what they are interested in and want to have fun with. So in embracing that, what have you been having
0: fun with lately?
1: Oh, I've been reading more. Um, I, okay. So I'm one of those burnout, like gifted children, Mm -hmm. um, like that they always talk about and I've struggled to read like for fun for like the last few years. And so I've been reading books. I, wrote, I read Hench last year, mm-hmm. which was a huge accomplishment for me because I finished a book. I know it took me a year, but I finished the whole book. And I was really proud about it. And then I am reading uh, The Children of Blood and Bone. It's really, really good. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. And I'm also writing my first book. So yeah. that's. And exciting. is it fiction, nonfiction? What do you write? Nonfiction. Um, the announcement is coming soon, hopefully. The announcement is coming soon. Um, but I will let everybody know once uh, once pre-sales are available or whatever is available for you to cop. Oh, that's that's so
0: exciting. And yes, we will we'll definitely promote it on the site. So if people want to follow you, if they want to find your
1: work, if they want to hire you for a speaking gig and pay you double your normal rate, where do they go? Okay. So you can request me uh, under the bookings and brand part of my website, which is crutchesandspice.com. Um, you could also go to collectivespeakers.com and I am listed under one of their featured speakers um, or you can Google me on their site. Uh, I just use, anyways. Uh, you can also find me at crutches underscore and underscore spice on TikTok and Instagram. And I'm at Amani underscore Barberant on Twitter. And I also have a Patreon. So I'm all over the place. If you'll find me, I promise.
0: And we'll make sure all of those links are up on on our site so people can follow you. And do you have wonderful content, both both serious and fun. And I I follow you on all the platforms and and have for years. Thank you
1: so much for being on the show. Of course. And thank you for asking me. I appreciate Uh, it.
0: Hi, this is Antti Vice from Fat Chicks on Top. I want to take a minute and talk about Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles on the most trending topics at any given moment and reads them in a natural human voice. For the first time ever, the entire internet has become listenable all in one place. This is great for accessibility needs as well as people who would rather listen than scroll. Explore trending podcasts from 50 countries. Our podcast, Fat Chicks on Top, is there too. You can download Newsly for free from www.newsly.me and use the promo code FC0T, one month free premium subscription. And now, a moment of gratitude.
1: I'm grateful for the disability community. They are some of my favorite people. I, the the other day, completely unprovoked, I was asked like, what are things you like and don't like? And I was just like, most people. But like, that does not include disabled people at all. I love them. I think that they are great. I think that, especially the part of the community that rallies around disabled Black, indigenous and people of color and disabled trans folks and disabled queer folks, I think that they are amazing. And I hope that they know their worth, and that they know that they're worth fighting for as well.
0: Hi, this is Auntie Vice from Fat Chicks on Top. If you like Fat Chicks and you are looking for other podcasts with great conversations, you might want to check out Chopping It Up with Ungayo, now on most streaming services. The world. This has been an episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Fat Chicks on Top is produced and hosted by Auntie Vice. Audio production is by a serious production. You can find all information about Fat Chicks on Top at FatChicksOnTop.com and follow Auntie Vice at Auntie Vice on most social media.